Hello and welcome to this Al Wada Status Hour podcast. My name is Omar Shanti and I will be our host for this episode entitled Transgressive Imaginaries Nation and Identity Through Rai. <laughs> This podcast will trace Rai throughout its history, from its inception in the 1930s until the early 2000s. It'll analyze Rai not as a strictly musical phenomenon, but as a vehicle for articulating and embodying complex narratives. In the tradition of Shade Poulsen, it'll treat Rai as a total social fact, defined by the situated practices of performance and listening, which in the age of records also translate to production and consumption. This approach allows one to read history through Rai precisely as one reads Rai through history. To facilitate this reflection, the podcast contextualizes Rai's history against its relevant social, political, and cultural backdrops. Where appropriate, it theorizes these developments, drawing off of post-colonial, sociological, and anthropological repertoires. It also incorporates musical excerpts and snippets of lyrics to color the analysis. By orienting its analysis on a genre, this podcast emphasizes the socio-cultural continuities that link time and space. It offers an important counterweight to the historiography that is grounded in formal politics and that draws from its ideological economy of borders and rupture. Moreover, it dismantles the methodological nationalism of these approaches by focusing on state agents rather than on reified state actors. In studying Rai specifically, this podcast observes a rich legacy of multifocal transgression that produced alternative conceptions of self-identity and collective imaginaries at important historical junctures. Throughout this history, resident and migrant Algerians alike have turned to Rai to carve out inhabitable spheres within their societies. In Rai music, they had an accessible and inclusive medium through which they could contest the constructed identities that were imposed upon them. Rai music first emerged in eastern Algeria in the 1930s at the confluence of three socio-cultural currents. The colonial destabilization of Algeria's rural peasantry, the increased global collectivity of Algeria's urban centers, and the entrenchment of indigenous forms of music as means of resistance and cultural authenticity. The French had colonized Algeria a century earlier, and having decided there would be a French colony, immediately began a long and gradual, though at times abrupt and episodic, process of dispossessing the native population. The French erected a legal superstructure to facilitate this plunder, capitalizing on the informal social arrangements that had mediated Algerians' relationship to the Ottoman state prior. A law of 1830 placed the Beylik, Ottoman, and Waqf lands, which peasants had tended to for their livelihood, under the control of the state. Another law of 1880 betrayed the arbitrariness of this legal edifice 
by granting the colonizer the right to seize property that deemed did not have a verifiable title. In addition to this form of expropriation, large-scale private investment worked in concert with the state to capitalize on epidemics, droughts, debt, and market fluctuations to further dispossess Algerians. All of these measures disproportionately affected the rural peasantry. Confronted with this increasing precarity, large numbers of these workers immigrated to France and to urban centers, sustaining their families in rural areas with remittances. While rural areas were being depopulated, the development of urban centers took on a different trajectory. As shanty towns proliferated to house the desperate and the disenfranchised, a new indigenous educated middle class was emerging. Buoyed by a 1901 French law that legalized associations, this segment of the population formed political parties, trade unions, newspapers, and other institutions of self-representation. Though their power to effect change was heavily curtailed by the colonizer, the early 1900s effectively established what McDougall has called the beginning of professional politics. Additionally, with the spread of vinyl, video, and phonograph technology, urban centers had increasing access to the world beyond their borders. Amid the turbulence of this climate, the local practices of music performance and listening came to be an important domain for the restitution of the social hierarchies and divisions that had underpinned rural and urban society alike. Yet these practices were also crucial sites for reconfiguring these same structures and thereby constructing new social imaginaries. During the interwar period, the struggle between these two conceptions of genre was waged within Western Algerian milieu, between on the one hand the traditional genres of the Bedouin Sheikh and the Metahath, and on the other the newly emergent Wahrani Asri and Rai of the Sheikhat. As will be explained currently, while the former two genres conserved their traditional norms of musical practice, the latter two actively dismantled these norms. The Sheikh's musical genre, known as the Malhun, dates back to the 16th century. It is a highly elaborate practice that overlays Bedouin poetry on the music of the Gilal, which is a long cylindrical drum, and the Gasba, a reed flute. Like its performers, it enjoys a high socio-cultural status in rural settings for the tradition, formality, age, and masculinity that it embodies. The Sheikh's Qasidas, numerous and long, were important repositories of oral tradition, passing down stories of tribal battles, Sufi learnings, love, and more. As such, aspiring practitioners were required to do thorough apprenticeships prior to performing. Here is Sheikh Hamad's recording of Talid Dar the Maddahat were afforded a lesser, yet nonetheless valuable, legitimacy among the rural population. As their name suggests, the performers were females whose repertoire was historically known for its madah, praise, which was primarily directed at the Prophet and the local saints. Their performances were initially restricted to private and socially sacred women spaces, such as segregated weddings, religious events, and private gatherings. This following excerpts from Sallu al-Nabi 
is a good representation of this genre. Both of these genres reinforced social norms that were built upon binaries including those of public-private, traditional-contemporary, and male-female. The emerging genres of Wahrani Asri and Rai were to be conceived not as distinct musical forms, but rather as direct challenges to these binaries. The Wahrani Asri style was pioneered by the late musicians Ahmed Wahabi and Blawil Huwari. It drew on the local Andalusian traditions, as well as on international music, both Western and Middle Eastern, to transform the sound of the Sheikh Malhoun to fit new transnational urban sensibilities. To this end, they incorporated instruments such as the oud, the accordion, the piano, and the banjo. The musical adventurism and cosmopolitanism of this group marked a distinctive break from the celebrated traditionality of the Malhoun's instrumentation. Moreover, the generation of singers had not gone through the rigid apprenticeship that qualified one to perform from the sheikh's repertoire. As such, this group defied restrictions both on who could perform the malhum and on how it should be performed. This contemporization defined the genre as apparent in its name, Asri. Here is Ahmed Wahabi's Waharan Waharan. A similar tradition of rupture could be seen with the Rai of the Sheikha, indeed the subject of this podcast. This genre transgressed the gendered boundaries of performance, music, and spatialization. Commonly performing in front of men, the Sheikha sang a wide repertoire that drew off of three sources. Improvised rendition of the Sheikh's Malhoun, which posed a double crime for their, quote, bastardization of traditional text, as well as their gender role inversion. The songs of the Madahat, hitherto restricted to private realm of female spaces, and her own written songs, which dealt with a wide domain of social issues, personal troubles, and worldly pleasures. As Virol notes, in adapting a moniker, the Sheikha became a nameless woman, severed from the patrilineage before which she would normally be held accountable. In this state, the Sheikha inherited a trace of masculinity as represented in her spatial idiom, as well as in her practices of self-expression and of consumption. For her affront to traditional norms, the Sheikha held minimal prestige. Nonetheless, she enjoyed substantial freedoms of movement and performance during the interwar period. It was with this mode of production that Rai was born, with Sheikha Ramiti and Sheikha Al-Ushma firmly embedded among its founders. Here's an excerpt of Sheikha Ramiti's Fatma Fatma.
When dealing with taxonomy of this sort, one must acknowledge that epistemological borders rarely pretend to reality, though these definitions constitute a useful framework for the analysis that follows. None of these entities are ontologically stable. Rather, these genres are continuously coming undone and being remade by performers who claim to represent them, as well as by audience who claim to discern them. Genres are thus products of discursive practice and must be understood as a necessarily fleeting, nebulous, and social entity that is sectioned off by boundaries which are at best fundamentally porous. Having statically defined these genres, then, in both the social and cultural landscape, this podcast now turns to observing the dynamics of their development throughout the latter decades of colonial rule. To do so, it situates them within the larger struggle for expression and identity in the colony that had at that moment taken Algerian auditory culture as an important battleground. During the mid-1930s, a time of heightened demands for national independence in the political arena, the French Bureau for Native Affairs became increasingly sensitive to the subversive potential of cultural products and insecure about its own ability to police them. This concern became more acute with advances to radio and record technology that further undermined the borders of a colonial state built on rigid spatial compartmentalization. The colony feared the spread of music and messaging that articulated Algerian independence, pan-Arabism, or any movement antithetical to their interests. Unwilling to invest in the technology needed to police radio transmissions and unable to prevent the smuggling of records across the borders, the colony instead policed the person of the Algerian listener. Radio and record vendors, cafes, musicians, and households came under surveillance for listening practices alone. Musicians were required to obtain permits for travel and frequently were harassed by authorities. Both artistic production and consumption were thus obstructed. This policy of repression was coupled with the development of the state-run Radio Algier in 1929. As Scales describes, one of the primary goals of the station at its inception was to, quote, advance a spiritual conquest of Arab hearts and minds by transgressing the public-private divide to reach into the impenetrable spaces of Algerian domestic life to advance the civilizing mission, end quote. To promote viewership, the station dedicated weekly segments to the Algerian politicians, intellectuals, and musicians whose music was deemed acceptable. Thus, the opera singer, Mahiyaddin Bashitarzi, the founder of Shaabi music, Muhammad Al-Anqa, and a young Sheikh Aramiti often succeeded in the latter. This had the double benefit of transmitting political messaging and springboarding these artists to notoriety among the Algerian audience and European record labels alike. These labels sought to capitalize on the expanding market for records within Algeria and produced music for many Algerian artists. In so doing, the labels challenged the state's claim to monopoly over artistic production. Thus, the French response to these musical developments mirrored its response to radio and to Algerian representational politics at large. They adopted a policy of coercion and co-optation. Yet due to the lingual incompetence of the censors, as well as the shifting political and social dynamics, the colony failed both to discern political messaging and to control the distribution of records that were deemed politically averse. According to Scales, 
this battleground of auditory culture expose the limits of colonial hegemony. It is precisely these limits that inadvertently produced a fertile space for the consolidation of these emergent genres in the final decades of colonial rule. One record emblematic of this time is Sheikh Al-Washma's Seed Al-Hakim, O Esteemed Judge. The outbreak of the War of Independence in 1954 brought with it important cleavages and continuities in the cultural domain. Many artists signaled their support for the revolution. Seminal figures of the Wahrani tradition, Ahmed Sabr and Blau al-Hawari, were arrested. Their counterpart, Ahmed Wahbi, joined the resistance on the Tunisian border. Yet, while Rai singers also expressed their solidarity, the FLN actively discouraged their transgressive performances. It was becoming clear Rai was not representative of the independent Algerian nation that the FLN wished to construct and which was rooted in religious orthodoxy, patriarchy and traditionalism in the name of restoring an authentic Algerian identity. This foreshadowed tensions between the state and the various artists and subcultures of Algerian society that it would govern following the achievement of independence in 1962. The early days of independence saw a cultural effervescence. Yet as a nascent Algerian state consolidated itself, it strengthened its attempts to construct a single national identity that would replace Algeria's pluralistic and culturally diverse society. This identity was conceived of with respect to three pillars. Arabness, in the face of both Berber and European culture and language. Sunni Islamic orthodoxy, in the face of the traditions of the Wailis and the Sufi Tariqas, and anti-imperialist socialism as a perpetual continuation of the revolution. For the nation's community of memories, which Weber argued constitutes the ultimately decisive element of national consciousness, the state put forth its founding myth, a revisionist tale of the War of Independence and the story of the Million Martyrs. Given the nature of this undertaking, the cultural realm was a key battleground. The state attempted to monopolize audio, visual, and print media, propagating the works of artists that conformed with their normative vision of Algerian society and history, while censoring those that did not by way of passive erasure and violent repression. With respect to artistic production then, the Algerian state operated the same mechanisms of exclusion and instrumentalization as the French regime had although they offered different justifications. The point is illustrated by both regimes' imprisonment of the Wahrani musician Ahmed Sabir for his overtly political content. According to Gafaiti, artists were asked to complete the tasks initiated by the war to generate a discourse that furthered the goal of creating an anti-imperialist national identity and the project of creating a socialist society to allow content to prevail over form, to abandon French and to write in Arabic." End quote. Those artists who took part did so against these constraints. Others went into self-imposed exile. Here's an excerpt from Ahmed Sabr's 1964 track, El Khayyim. Its lyrics go, O oh, traitor, your days are numbered. No matter how long it takes us, we will hold you to account. 
The regime was similarly prescriptive in the domain of music. In 1968, it declared the traditional Andalusi genre as the national music, despite it then being a genre reserved for the elites. The state-controlled radio stations only played music in line with the goals of the revolution. Andalusi, Egyptian and Levantine music, which was meant to instill an Arab identity in the population, the Malhoun, which was considered a national heritage that had maintained its authenticity against the onslaught of French colonialism, and a new breed of patriotic music written within the confines of the state's vision for the new Algerian. Rai, as a multilingual, mystical, and socially transgressive genre, was almost entirely excluded from state multimedia. Beyond informally banning it from the radio waves, the state also drastically curbed the spaces in which Rai had thus far been performed. In so doing, it reconfigured the performance and audience of the genre and thereby redefined Rai's practices of social enactment. By outlawing the public performance of women, the state ensured Rai could no longer be performed in many of the spaces it had hitherto inhabited, such as the public squares, cafes, and souks. By regulating orthodox religious festivals, such as the Wadat, the state further stripped Rai of the domain of performance. In the absence of these venues, Rai was confined to the marginal and socially peripheral spaces of the bars, cabarets, and mahshashat, or cannabis stands. As the Angelus notes, this pulled Rai into, quote, a space at once marginal, nocturnal, hidden, but central within a certain culture of masculinity, end quote. This set in place a dual movement. Firstly, the Sheikhat gradually stopped performing in cabarets. Some, such as Sheikh Ramiti, continued to subversively release Rai records under the classification of folklore. Others transitioned into Madahat groups. With Rai artists among them, these groups increasingly began to incorporate secular Rai tracks among their repertoires and thereby grant them greater visibility and cultural legitimacy. Secondly, the first generation of young male Rai artists began to take the place of their disenfranchised female counterparts. Their performances injected the genre with a new energy and rid it of its gender-based transgressions. Both these movements would be conducive to the grassroots spread of the genre in the years to come. The most emblematic of these young Rai artists is Butalja Belqasim. According to the Algerian journalist Smail, he was, quote, the young wolf who, barely 13 years old, had committed a crime of treason. He had dethroned the then queen of rule Rai, the diva Sheikha Ramiti. Indeed, his impact was immense. He is considered the one who paved the way for the first generation of male Rai artists. He achieved notoriety throughout western Algeria in 1965 at 13 years old with his debut track, a cover of Sheikh al Washma's. His record, the following year, spread nationally. It included the tracks Sirbili Bawi, Serve Me My Bao, a local Algerian beer, and Miluda Fin Kunti, Where Were You Miluda? 
The former saw the singer begging for beer and alcohol to wash away his sorrows, while the latter is a tragic account of the troubles that alcohol causes. Its lyrics ring, Miluda, where were you? And tell me, where did you leave the child? My darling, what happened to you? And how did you forget Saeed? Oh Miluda, how did you manage to forget this poor child? Wine has carried you away and whiskey seduces you. Mutalja's career continued in this way, performing original works as well as tweaking others from the repertoires of the sheikhs and the sheikhat. Musically, Rai continued to evolve. By the late 60s, Rai musicians were channeling the creativity of the Wahrani style and turning to the instruments of modern Western music to reimagine their genre. Two key figures of this movement, shown by Swedenborg, were Mas'ud Belemmo and Ahmed Zargi. The former replaced the gasba and mizmar with the saxophone and the trumpet. The latter introduced electric guitar and the wah-wah pedal. Though the latter died of a car crash in 1983, both had tremendous influence on the music to come. For his innovations, Belemu was widely considered to be the founder of modern rai, despite being a trumpeter. Many point to his 1975 track, Zargo Masrara, as the birth of this new phase. Other notable contributions include Sepama Fout, Ruhi Yawaharan, and Sahab al-Barud. Each of these would become a hallmark of the Rai tradition and were covered extensively by future performers. Here's an excerpt of Mas'ud Balemmu Zarga al-Masrara. Here's Ahmed Zargi performing Ana Dallali. By the mid-1970s, Rai was musically innovative, socially licentious, and more popular than ever among greater segments of Algerian society. Around that time, the first generation, born of an independent Algeria, came of age. These young men and women had grown without experiencing the brutal war of independence, the memories of which still legitimized the state's one-party authoritarian rule. Instead, they witnessed the cracks of the regime. Limited mobility, endemic corruption, poverty, unemployment, and isolationism. With bleak outlooks, many turned to Rai as a vehicle for self-expression and artistic production. A number of these youth began to perform, and soon the first generation of pop Rai artists arrived on the scene. Musicians of this generation prefixed their names with Sheb or Sheba to mark their youth. The most notable among them are Fadila, Khalid, Mami, and Zahwaniya. Khalid had begun recording to some success in the mid-1970s. 
1974 track, Triglice, recorded when he was 14, is thoroughly emblematic of the new wave of pop rye. The pace is frenetic, the expression youthful, and the accordion fully integrated. Yet it is most commonly held that it was Sheba Fadela's 1979 song, Mahlali Sleep No Longer Pleases Me, that marked the start of this new era. As Dawoodi and Miliani claim, this song would quote, ignite the powder trail of the new rye. Thus, the stage was set for Rai to explode into a national mode of expression for Algerian youth in the 1980s. Rai had overcome its marginalization and emerged as an increasingly crucial medium for the articulation of new, grassroots, national imaginaries that were inclusive, accessible, and local. Its impact was not restricted to Algeria. With the advent of cassette and new network of broadcasts and distribution, Rai attained a growing audience among the immigrant Maghribi communities of France. Rai tracks could be found in the record stores of predominantly immigrant neighborhoods and from 1981 were broadcast on the nascent Radio Bove station. Beyond this, in 1980, the group Rena Rai formed in Paris. This band played their own distinctive blend of rock Rai, refashioning the classics of their elders with crisp, intricate guitar work and a rock drum kit. In a certain respect, they carried on the tradition of Le Frère Zergi with their instrumentation. However, Rena Rai is uniquely significant for performing important symbolic work in articulating the hyphenated Franco-Maghribi identity that had become an urgent concern at this period. <laughs> During the 1980s, France and Algeria both witnessed immense outpourings of social energy and collective reflections on national identity. While the unique circumstances of these moments differed, Rai nonetheless would play an important role in both locales, as Algerians agitated against their exclusion and marginalization in both countries, Rai provided them an inclusive medium that embodied and centered their complex identities in opposition to the reductionist and essentialist labels imposed upon them. Algeria was rocked in the first years of the decade by an unprecedented wave of widespread social mobilizations. The demographics and demands of the protests were diverse. They included the 1980 Berber Spring, the 1981 female-led protests over the repressive family code, and the 1982 circulation of a petition calling for the establishment of Sharia law. 
respectively. These called for an end to Arabization, a reconfiguration of the role of the woman, and a prioritization of Islam. In so doing, these activists challenged the very pillars on which the cultural revolution had been based, and preferred new conceptions of the Algerian national imaginary. Simultaneously, demands for greater freedoms and reform grew among a population frustrated at the unaccountability and corruption of their regime the lack of public provision, the rising unemployment, and the worsening housing crisis. This was primarily expressed among Algeria's first generation as reflected in the student protests of 1980, 1981, and 1982. Amid this climate of social unrest, the Algerian government finally began to embrace Rai in 1985. That July, Rai was included for the first time in the Algiers Youth Festival. The following August, the first ever Rai festival took place in Wahran. Liberal elements within the establishment led by Lieutenant Colonel Hussein Snusi architected the shift in state policy. Snusi was then director of the state-supported arts and cultural organization. He explained the move's rationale in March 1986 as follows. Quote, Rai for us constitutes a podium for this youth that have a need to quote, break out. I'd rather see a young person come dance to Rai at Riyadh al-Fatr than loiter in cafes. In addition to that, Rai is in the process of becoming an event of international import. And who's to say that Rai will not make Algeria better known to the world than its gas? End quote. The double meaning of the phrase break out is well advised. As shown in the examples above, certain actors had gone beyond calling for reform. By challenging the dominant conception of national identity and the premises of the Cultural Revolution, these actors were indeed breaking the very mold that the Algerian nation had been fitted in since independence. Moreover, youth activists played central roles in each of these movements. Snusi's view on Rai is similarly shrewd. Rai had presented an accessible and compelling subculture that addressed relevant issues in local dialects and with the latest musical stylings. The genre's remarkable spread among the youth suggested its importance as a vehicle of communal belonging and as a platform for exploring alternative conceptions of national identity. To finally embrace it and grant it a venue in the Riyadh al-Fatr, opposite the testament to the War of Independence, in the name of which Rai had thus far been excluded, was a symbolically rich gesture. In a way, the subculture was being legitimized. Snusi's final question betrays his global considerations. Algeria had been known under Boumediene as a bastion of third-worldism and socialism. That was over. Shedley's regime, as part of a policy of selective liberalization and rebranding, had to be shrouded in a new image. To achieve this, Rai was to be publicized and exported France was the first country to import the Rai, hosting its first ever Rai festival on January 1986. This project was the brainchild of Colonel Snoussi, the French Minister of Culture Jack Lang, and the French music producer Martine Maisonnier. Just as with the Rai festival, sanctioned a few months earlier by the FLN, this move was motivated by political interests. It was conceived of primarily as an intervention into the urgent battle 
over the definition of Frenchness that was then fixated on the figure of the immigrant as the perceived outsider within. French society was polarized. On the one hand, xenophobia had been steadily on the rise since the recession of the mid-1970s, stoked by the scapegoating of the immigrant for the economic downturn, the conception of the immigrant's race as necessarily trapping them in an unbridgeable foreignness, and a holistic demonization of the culture, language, and character of the immigrant. The most representative instigator of this movement was the National Front, which was rapidly gaining in the elections of the mid-1980s. On the other hand, this far-right mobilization was matched by a large but ideologically rigid anti-racism movement that is best represented by SOS Racism and Lang's Socialist Party. This latter group advocated for Republican integration and rallied around the trois à différence of their ethnic minorities. Despite their different conclusions, both the FN and the PS's ideologies were built on the static reification of the fluid categories of ethnicity and identity. Both premise the distinctness of the other and in so doing conceptually isolated her from the rest of society. In the case of the anti-racism movement, this was implicitly understood as a necessary step towards celebrating diversity and defeating the FN. It was in this vein that Lang and Maisonnier sought to bring Rai to France. By then, Rai had already become an important channel for the French Maghrebi population to both form and express their hyphenated identities. Confined to the peripheries of French society, where they were pressured to assimilate, while also castigated for their race and ethnicity, they sought to construct what Gross et al. have called, quote, livable zones, end quote, spaces of hybridity that celebrated and legitimized their unique Franco-Maghrebi reality. Rai music, with its spirit of individuality and protest, as well as its use of local language and its transnational outlook, had offered an ideal medium for their elaboration. French-born and immigrant artists alike connected their plights to the larger history of the Algerian population through the language of Rai, which, as Gross et al. observed, became a, quote, chief means of cultural expression for a minority struggling to carve out an identity in a racist environment, end quote. Thus, on January 1986, the first ever Rai festival in France was held in the Parisian suburb of Bobigny. The genre's biggest stars, such as Remiti, Favela, and Khaled, attended this four-day festival. The concert brought Rai out of the strictly ethnic space it had hitherto occupied and catapulted it to the forefront of the emerging French world music scene. A number of these performers earned deals with international record labels, thereby setting themselves and the genre on a course towards global recognition. Thus, the mid-1980s marked the legitimization of Rai by the FLN and the PS. This took the form of sponsoring the first festivals in Algeria and France, respectively. For the former, this move was a way to quell the environment of youthful mobilization and to modify Algeria's image for the outside world. For the latter, it was a symbolically important interjection into a broader struggle over the symbol of the immigrant as well as the meaning and the borders of French republicanism. While it is difficult to quantify their successes in this respect, these concerts certainly amplified right to new audiences and facilitated its absorption into networks of global production and consumption. 
This paved the way for a gradual artistic flight, with musicians leaving due to the allure of the production and distribution capabilities of Western record labels. The outwards flow grew drastically more abrupt with the rise of the Islamic Salvation Front and its direct assault on Rai following its victory in the 1989 municipal elections. As De Angelis convincingly argues, the attack was motivated both by the perception of Rai as anti-Islamic and by the competition that the Rai posed for the hearts of the marginalized youth. Indeed, as shown by Shade Polson's anthropological work, marginalized youth may support the fees and listen to Rai music without perceiving them to be at tension. The same can be said about Rai singers who drew heavily off of religious repertoires. Indeed, Rai's conflict with the Fees, like its conflict with the FLN, was less ideological than existential. According to Gafaiti, these two conflicts were identical insofar as both antagonists were, quote, obsessed with unity, monotheism, be it secular or religious, that by definition cannot bear multiplicity, end quote. And Rai was a vehicle for channeling complex narratives that did not align with these conservative conceptions of culture. Yet, despite their similarities, Gafaiti concedes that Rai was no longer dealing with a relatively benign form of censorship, but instead what he calls the most barbaric form of repression. With their election victory on June 12, 1990, the Fees assumed governance of a number of territories, including Wahran. There, the local government cancelled the upcoming annual Rai festival of August 1990 and severely curtailed the performance of this genre. The repression turned violent during Ramadan in March 1991. Fees activists attempted to torch one concert and attack the audience of another. After the government cancelled the second round of the general election in January, this violence on artists, cultural figures and the population at large reached tragic levels and the country became consumed by war. Shabhasni would lament in 1992, we were all on the blacklist male or female youth. With the fees, Wahran was dying. He then told Liberation magazine in 1993, Islamists often come to my house and say to me, you have a beautiful voice. Why don't you come and be a muaddin for us? People love you. If they see you pray, they will come and pray too. Instead, Hasni sang of love and desperation, of ecstasy as well as sadness. For this, he became known as the Wahrani Nightingale, the creator of Love Rai, the Algerian Julio Iglesias. On the 5th of July 1993, Algerian Independence Day, he performed to an estimated 150,000 fans in Algiers. He then embarked on a tour of Europe and the USA before returning home to Algeria. In September 1994, Hasni was killed outside his parents' home in Wahran. The GIA took responsibility. The Shabazahwaniya, they didn't shoot Hasni, they shot the Algerian youth. Virol echoed this. The attackers understood clearly that to kill Shab Hasni was to kill the love song.
1980, it was Rashid Baba and his brother Fethi who built the first 8-track recording studio in Algeria. In the 1970s, he had formed a rock band with Fethi called Le Vautour, modelled after Hendrix, Santana and the sitar maestro Rivak Shankar. The duo would pivot and apply that same adventurous spirit to production. As one journalist reflects, he became, quote, a maker of kings and queens, who put into orbit young singers like Shab Hamid, Wari Ben Shinit, Sheb Anwar, and the duo Fadela and Sahrawi. His work with the latter on the 1989 album, Nis Alfiq, became an international hit. He was killed leaving his record store in February 1995. Here's an excerpt of his and his brother's song, Habbet Naish. estimated 150 to 200,000 Algerians died in what has become known as the Black Decade. Numerous other intellectuals, musicians, and artists were among the victims. Without its own comprehensive study, one can't address the effect of this decade on artistic production in any meaningful way. Yet, there is little doubt that its center was dislocated further outside of Algerian borders. By the mid-90s, Rai had already firmly embedded itself within the global world music genre. In the process, it had undergone important musical shifts that have had lasting effects through to the present day. As Ben Tahila and Davies suggest, quote, while in its origins the boundaries between Rai and other North African musical genres were not clear, at the beginning of the 20th century the boundaries between Rai and popular music are becoming less and less clear. Thus, it is perhaps no easier to say where Rai music begins or ends in 2002 than it was 30 years ago, end quote. Indeed, by the turn of the decade, Rai had incorporated elements from rap, reggae, blues, and other genres to an unprecedented extent. It was increasingly produced by foreign record labels for the diluted tastes of global audiences. Since then, this process has only accelerated. However, by maintaining certain linguistic patterns and continuously conversing with its past pre-global repertoire, Rai has carved itself out a distinctive local identity on its global travels. The genre's linguistic localization on the global stage is treated in Ben Tahila and Davis' seminal study entitled Language Mixing in Rai. That study analyzes a corpus of 150 Rai songs for their patterns of language use. As the authors observe, Rai music is embedded with many of the same patterns of code switching that people use spontaneously and unconsciously in their daily lives. This is remarkable, as lyrics lack two crucial properties of the kind of speech where code switching normally occurs, spontaneity and intimacy. Instead, lyrics constitute discourse which is premeditated, prepared and edited with a public audience. As the paper concludes, quote, in using the types of switching patterns characteristic of conversation, 
Rag performers are clearly situating themselves within their own North African community, in a sense localizing their repertoire. End quote. Rai is also further localized in the global age through its musicians' continued conversation with the genre's history. Contemporary artists frequently draw from the rich body of work that constitutes Rai as a genre. In adapting existing works, musicians necessarily play with what Bruggs and Bauman have termed the intertextual gap. If one distills a song to the triad of lyric, melody, and embodiment, then this gap can be conceived of as a three-dimensional vector of difference with a magnitude, a direction, and infinite possibilities for their combination. Indeed, in maintaining these strands of continuities, Rai musicians have deployed diverse strategies with respect to this gap. This is illustrated in the brief survey that follows. Some tracks, such as Khalid's 2009 Zavana and Fadil's 2010 Zina, have minimized this distance by maintaining the lyrics, melody, and instrumental embodiments of the original song to great extents. In doing so, they pay homage to the original works and isolate the singer's voice as the medium of difference. Moreover, they situate the singer further within the genre and thereby provide them greater authority and legitimacy. Here is an excerpt from Khalid Zabana, a cover of Ahmed Wahabi's eulogy to Ahmed Zabana, the first Algerian guillotine victim of the War of Independence. Others, such as Shab'isa's 2011 Ruhiya Wahran, have maintained the melodies and lyrics of previous works, but emphasized stylistic differences in their embodiment. In Isa's rendition of Khalid's track, these differences come in the form of language and instrumentation. Isa's song, performed with Chico and the Gypsies, gives a much more prominent role to the Spanish guitar and even includes a section sung in Spanish. Finally, works such as Shabmami's 1999 track, Bledi, and Najim and Kenzi's 2008, Yamama, adopt the melodies of previous works but overlay different lyrics on top of them. This device focuses attention on the lyrics. Mami's Bledi is a loving ode to Algeria in which the singer praises its city and laments his own departure. The song is a reworking of Muhammad Zarbut's Shhilt Layani, which is itself a love song dedicated to a hazel-eyed woman. To show his intentionality in substituting the woman for the motherland, Mami keeps Zarbut's chorus. It's so easy to grow close to you, but to separate is unbearable. Oh, 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 oh,
وفراقك ما يقدرش عنه طويل طويل كيف سهل وفراقك ما قدرت عنه Najim and Kenza's Yamama is a plea against the Haraga, which I have written about elsewhere. It warns of both the wretchedness of Ghurba, absence, and the dangers of clandestinity, while simultaneously celebrating a staged image of Algeria, revolving around family, food, and beaches. It adopts the melody of Balamu Mas'ud's Zarga U Musrara. Thus, in mimicking the code-switching patterns of intimate and spontaneous conversation, as well as frequently reliving and readapting its own pre-global repertoire, Rai music has sought to maintain elements of its local frame of reference on the global stage. To what extent this has succeeded is a moot point and requires its own separate study. In looking back on the history of Rai, this podcast has hoped to offer an alternate narrative to the reading of Algerian history. Instead of focusing on the domain of formal politics and the reified categories of state, party, or insurgent group, this podcast has privileged the socio-cultural domain, which is characterized more by strands of continuity and connection than by rupture and separation. In tracing Rai specifically, this podcast has unearthed a rich tradition of social transgression and public contestation of self-identity and collective imaginaries that was most pronounced in the bifocal struggle of the 1980s, which opposed Algerian FLN and the French PS alike. Even as Rai was absorbed into global markets of production and consumption, firmly embedded within the category of world music, it has pursued localizing measures to maintain its position as an accessible and rooted Maghribi genre. To what extent it has succeeded in these localizing efforts, and similarly whether it has indeed, quote, made Algeria more well-known to the world than its gas, end quote, requires further study. Yet there is no doubt that Rai has charted a symbolically fertile trajectory that deserves celebration and reflection. Sabal <laughs> barud, 